Invest in yourself today with our Insider Pro product, which gives you the career path to reach the next step in your cybersecurity journey. Join today on cyber.it using the discount code podcast. You're listening to the 401 Access Denied podcast. I'm Mike Rowan, VP of Engineering and CISO at Cyberi. Please join me and my co-host, Joseph Carson, Chief Security Scientist at Thycotic, as we discuss the latest news and attempt to make cybersecurity accessible, usable, and fun. Be sure to check back every two weeks for new episodes. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the next episode of 401 Access Tonight. Um, we've got a fun, interesting topic for the audience today, which is to talk about cyber war. Um, potentially, you know, we could get into really defining it as cyber warfare um, because of different definitions that's out there. And uh, today we've got, of course, Mike um, on the show with us today. And we also have Josh. Um, so, Josh, I'll pass over to you if you want to give a you know, brief introduction of yourself and what you do and where you're from. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, so my name is Josh Lospinoso. Uh, I spent 10 years in uh, the United States Army uh, as a cyber officer. I uh, spent a lot of that time building um, offensive cyber toolkits for various intelligence community um, uh, organizations, including Cyber National Mission Force, which is uh, one of the big commands inside of Cyber Command that uh, conducts cyber warfare. I got out uh, about uh, two years ago, um, started a cybersecurity company called Shift5 uh, that builds cybersecurity products for operational technology, including weapon systems. So things like um, tanks, uh, you know, destroyers, um, aircraft, as well as civilian infrastructure like uh, um, trains, um, you know, commercial aircraft, uh, building automation systems, that sort of thing. Awesome. Um, and the reason why this topic is probably very close to me is that um, I'm based in Estonia and I've been here for 20 years. I'm not Estonian, otherwise people kind of get to comment that, you know, my Estonian, you know, um, my English is very good for being Estonian. English is my first language, so let's make sure we get that clear. <laughs> so, um, so no need to compliment me on my, how good my English is because it's the only one I know. Um, but in Estonia, we did have a cyber attack, which was, you know, classified as a cyber war. And I myself, I'm a, I'm a survivor of what they claim is a cyber war. Um, but we get into a lot of the hot topics about the definition. And a lot of what you just mentioned, um, things that have, let's say, kinetic impact. For me, really, you know, cyber war, cyber warfare gets into uh, what can be classed truly as a cyber warfare is when it actually has some type of kinetic impact uh, to the nation or to, um, you know, the, the uh, country or, or uh, let's say, location being attacked. Um, so the definition itself gets a bit varied over time. Um, I do see the Estonian aspect of being a pre-cyber war that didn't actually turn into cyber war. It was the use of technology against Estonia, but without the real kinetic impact, um, I find it difficult to really say it was a cyber war itself. So, Josh, in your kind of mind, you know, being on the offensive side of things and, and the technology side, um, what is your interpretation or, or kind of classification or definition of a cyber war or cyber warfare in itself? That's a really sticky question. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's generational uh, how people think about these things. So certainly I think if you're having kinetic effects, people have an easier time understanding how that's like physical violence and that mm -hmm. is like close to some kind of warfare. Um, 
my, you know, people in my generation, when we saw, for example, like the Sony attacks, um, I very much considered that as tantamount to like dropping a bomb through an empty building, right? Like there may not have been loss of human life, mm-hmm. but there was massive economic um, uh, casualty from from that action, right? Like you you mm-hmm. you you had serious serious uh, monetary consequences for a private corporation, you know, that's headquartered in in the U.S. And um, so, you know, from from my mind, the the means of how you achieved that outcome are not mm-hmm. so important. It's like the fact that you achieved that outcome, but for whatever reason, because it's, it's people don't have an intuition for how someone could conduct a cyber attack. I think for whatever reason, or we had a very muted response to that. Um, so I know that's a non-answer to your question. Um, no, but I, no. I, I, yeah. Yeah. No, no, that, that's actually, I mean, that's absolutely one of the things we have to look at as well. There's different uh, kinetic impacts, um, whether it being, you know, physical damage, whether it being taken out of power station, taking out, you know, some type of you know, military complex or taking out, um, let's say, civilian locations. But the real financial impact does have a kinetic impact in the outcome. Um, it does have some type of, you know, economical um, impact to basically either companies financially wise that they'll have to spend and and lose at the end of the year on profits. So I, I agree. I think the time the, is that during those types of attacks is that the time to realizing the impact is sometimes is that dwell time between basically it happening to doing the forensics and doing the actual attribution and doing uh, the understanding is sometimes far apart. And that's why sometimes it's very, very difficult to make the association because when you get that even six months, a year later, when the attribution finally happens, then that's where you start, you know, you, how, how close does the attribution or the root cause analysis need to be before that definition becomes realistic? Where do you yeah. think like um, disinformation type attacks and the, you know, propaganda, where do you think that falls? Because it's much harder to draw that line to the kinetic or economic outcomes, mm-hmm. right? Like it's just disinformation and uh, where would you sort of classify that? Yeah, I mean, that's another really sticky question um, <laughs> because like I think there's there's something, you know, Computer Computer Fraud Abuse Act has its like, you know, there, there's a lot of things about it that um, we could talk about. Right. But I think it did at least outline some kinds of norms or standards, you know, whether we agree with those or not. And so there's there's a pretty clear violation of that in the sorts of attack like the Sony attack, right? Like I found some ODA on your machines. I exploited them. I'm manipulating them. I'm destroying data. Like it's fairly clear that like I I violated your like property rights in some at some level. Mm-hmm. When it comes to like disinformation campaigns, it's almost like you know if I create a bunch of Twitter bots and I'm like doing hashtag suppression or whatever. Like I'm not I'm not really like subverting. Uh, an IT asset or like getting remote code execution on them and doing anything overtly nefarious. It's, it's like even a shade be like before that. So it's like, right. it's really, it's really hard. Right. Because um, you know, what, where, where do you draw the line? Number one. And then number two is like, what kind of remedial action can you take? Because at some level you're, you're now talking about like inhibiting free speech of, of, of these, these, so it's like, it's, it's very complicated and I'm not sure that I have well-formed thoughts on it. I, I want yeah, to, I've, I've got it from, from, yeah, on the, on the, you know, it's, it's a good old age of, of propaganda, you know, deep, all this kind of, you know, was it fake news, you know, misinformation, disinformation, all of those really just come from the core element of propaganda. So, you know, and there's two elements of it is, is one that you put a lot of, um, 
you defraud the existing information or you basically poison it, poison the existing information. And it happens, you know, it's, it happens consistently all the time. And we go back to the, you know, the most uh, kind of popular discussed one is Cambridge Analytica, that um, should it, hit, it have been a class as some type of weapon because the way that it used data um, and used that information was to basically, you know, have an impact of an outcome. Um, whether or not being financially, but also from you know people's uh, you know, democracies, so we have to be you know it's always a challenge, and I, I agree with Josh. It's a bit of a sticking point where really it can get to the point where you know the attribution. For me, what I prefer to have is that when you're getting into at least the political realm of side of things, is that anyone who's campaigning or anyone who that they have to disclose. Um, or be transparent to their source of information and not use those types of uh, propaganda tools that's hidden in the background. So they had to disclose it up front um, and so at least be honest with the citizens that is voting for them. So it's always important when you get into it and that helps people make the more, let's say, uh, educated decision when you know where information is coming from. The, the context is what's important in the internet and when you lose context, that's when it gets a bit tricky and a bit into, you know, not knowing where the original source came from. Yeah. So, yeah. So one of the kind of, there's a lot of challenges here with, when we look at, you know, there's a lot of events over the years when we talk about, you know, from the Estonian um, impact in 2007, of course we had Georgia, um, I think it was 2008. And then we had the Ukraine situation as well. And Ukraine happened numerous times over the, over those years. And for me, really, it gets into those discussions in those areas around defensive and offensive capabilities. Um, and this really gets into, for me, it all becomes down to better cooperation, collaboration between countries. And it's really about when we talk, look at my, my kind of overall, when I looked at this back in 2007, 2008, after Estonia, and one of the things, so just kind of give you some context, one of the things then was that Estonia had been building its digital society for many years. And in 2007, we realized it was called, we, we called it the doomsday scenario. Because what happened was is that all the raw citizens data was held within the Estonian borders. And during that attack in 2007, there's a military exercise on the border of Estonia, training exercises, you know, <laughs> just happened to co co you know, exist at the same time as cyber attacks happening. And they realized that all of their data was in the country of Estonia. And it meant that if there ever was a land invasion, that they could destroy those, the, the raw, the central data sources, data centers, and put Estonia back to pre-digitalization time. And that meant that the only way that Estonia could actually really kind of move forward was to decentralize its information systems. And this got into the concept of what was called was data embassies, allowing Estonia to decentralize outside of the border of Estonia. So that even if there was a land invasion, that they would be decentralized, meaning that if you take out one node, which would be the Estonian country, then the country could continue digitally um, in those post-events. And this kind of really, when I was working that back in 2007, 2008, it got me realizing that collaboration is key here and countries working together. But with defensive, that means, you know, defensive capabilities is quite clear, but when you get into offensive capabilities and also using private companies for those offensive capabilities, for me, that's a bit of a gray area and an area that really oversteps some of the, the boundaries and ethics that I've got. Um, so Josh, kind of, since you worked in a lot of the offensive areas, where do you see, you know, 
collaboration and offensive working together? Yeah, it's um, uh, it's a tough one. I mean, every country has a different answer on where the line is, but I am unaware of any party um, that plays in this space that doesn't in some form or fashion um, rely on uh, private industry to, mm -hmm. to make offensive operations happen. So, you know, in the kind of reducto ad absurdum, like you, you're not making the computers and the, and the infrastructure that you're using to conduct operations, right? So, so right off the bat, you're, you're already using like tools at some level, you're not rewriting operating systems to like use for your platforms to conduct mm -hmm. attacks, right? On the other extreme, you have some countries that, you know, I'm sure you're aware of given your location that um, work through, you know, gray hat types to conduct operations and essentially like, hey, if you guys are willing to do these like kind of government directed actions, we'll turn a blind eye to all of the carding mm -hmm. stuff that you're doing on the side to make money, right? And then you have other nations that are somewhere in between. And it's really just a moral question, I think, of like where where do we fall in that spectrum? Mm -hmm. So like in the US, for example, um, we historically in our way of doing uh, conducting warfare, we've got a distinction between basically the, the people pulling the trigger and mm -hmm. everyone behind that person pulling the trigger. And if you look at the way we do kinetic operations, you have civilians like government civilians all over the battle space, right? We, we, deploy, we deploy government civilians into, uh, into war zones mm -hmm. to do things like, you know, run the bases, um, sometimes do security operations, defending like, you know, an, an encampment. We've got uh, mm -hmm. people doing supply missions. Intel analysts, right, are very often like seasoned government civilians who like retired from the military and came back to, to continue working on mission. And so, you know, without getting into specifics, I think a reasonable person could surmise that we do that kind of, we, we port that sort of mental model into how we conduct cyber operations. Yep. And I could, that does create a massive gray area. I actually remember um, after um, doing my university in the US, one of the first jobs I applied for was actually an air traffic controller. And it was actually for a government that actually it was a civilian position and they actually had civilians operating on, for example, aircraft carriers that actually were uh, basically doing <laughs> the navigation and, yep. and flight pass yep. for, for flight, for aircraft. And for me, I was always surprised at that, um, that there would be actually in, in those locations in war zones that there'd be civilians right. operating in those environments. Um, right. So it is, it is always a challenge to, to where, where does that line fit? And I, I agree with you. One of the biggest challenges I've have got, and, and especially when we talk about um, advanced, you know, the, the, the APT groups, um, and you got all of those labels and numbers that we have, the definitions, you know, from various different uh, groups, whether it being Fancy Bird to uh, Cozy Bird and so forth. And for me, it always gets into the challenge is that many of those groups, they are basically, for me, some of them are cyber mercenaries. They are not... Basically, government employees are not being paid by the government. What they're doing is carrying out cybercrime. They're criminal organizations carrying out crimes within the country's borders. And those nation states are giving a blind eye, as you mentioned, that, that they're, as long as they're not attacking their own citizens and they're attacking other countries, that, and as long as they do favors <laughs> um, for the government, then the government will not, um, you know, let's see, prosecute them. 
And this gets into a bit of a challenge. It's always that legal area into, you know, should, even if they're not government oper operators, but should we start to look at some way of holding those countries accountable when we have cyber mercies working within their borders? Right. Yeah. I mean, um, you think about the moral hazard from a com mm -hmm. country's perspective. It's like, hey, I can have these, you know, I, I wrote this article, the uh, fish out of water that describes how difficult it is to have, um, you know, the analogy is like somebody who can run two miles in under 15 minutes and also dissect a windows kernel dump. Like there's, <laughs> there's not like a lot of like overlap between those two communities. Um, nor do I think there has to be, you know, to be super mm -hmm. clear. Um, and, and so we, we have, we are hamstringing ourselves in a lot of ways by making these kind of artificial requirements because the army and the Navy and the Air Force are meant to do certain things. And they have this whole completely different aspect of warfare now that we're like, well, the DOD does warfare, so they have to do cyber too. And we haven't changed our standards to accommodate this population that's capable of conducting cyber warfare. So from our perspective, it would be um, a huge boon to cyber operations if we could just sort of like task um, private citizens to conduct these activities. Um, and it, that would be enough uh, of a, a convincing argument, but there's an additional convincing argument, which is if they get caught now, it's like, well, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't tell them to do that. Like, what are you talking? There's, pl there's plausible deniability baked mm -hmm. into the whole system. And so you can, you can understand why certain countries would be like, yeah, let's, let's, this is, ex this is exactly what we want. We have no, <laughs> there's no qualms here with like running cyber operations this way. And so given that there is that moral hazard that like the incentives are just totally misaligned, um, mm -hmm. we have to we have to make countries incur some cost for doing business that way, right? And I don't know what the right answer is, but, but what you're, I think, illuminating is, is definitely in line with that thought. Yeah, because, you know, in some regards, it's the, they're breaking the law in their own countries. Right. And they're not actually the country's not upholding their own law against those criminals. And therefore, we have to find a way to, you know, to be accountable, whether it's a Europol or Interpol, whatever right. organization leads that from an international cooperation. Uh, for me, there has to be some way of holding those countries accountable for right. allowing criminal organizations to attack other nations, whether it being for economical or just simple you know, ransomware cases or uh, um, intellectual property theft and so forth. Those There has to be some accountability and there has to be some area of classification or definition for those types of acts. And that gets into one of my biggest topics is it gets into attribution. And one of the things, I, I think one of, the, one of our biggest failures in attribution is, is that we, we try to, in everything that I've read or every time there's an incident happening and there's an attribution you know, assumption, is sometimes we tend to look for one, one actor one one author off it and and even i remember doing a lot of work for for different uh areas that i didn't even know what my ultimate you know what, what my architecture design was going to be used for i did not know i was just creating one jigsaw piece puzzle in a larger puzzle that i have no visibility into what the bigger picture is and that happens a lot with even you know uh let's say operations that happens you've got those people who's creating the small little bit pieces of puzzle they're meant to carry this task, and then that puzzle gets used either for multiple things or a single operation or campaign. Um, and it makes attribution very difficult because you end up having multiple parties. Um, and also even getting to the point where, for me, only if they make a mistake is where I find that we can get to some type of attribution. 
unless there's some type of human element or human intelligence, which then makes disclosing attribution very difficult because then you're revealing that you have people, um, you know, whatever you know, agents in, or, you know, in those other countries that are helping provide and disclose that information. So, you know, from what you've seen or what experienced, where do you think we are with attribution now? Um, and getting to eventually true attribution where we can really uh, um, call out uh, and reveal, you know, the actors behind those types of activities. Yeah, I mean, I think for having been on the offensive side for a while, um, we make attribution really, really, really difficult. Um, you know, we think about it a lot. And um, uh, I mean, more often than not, people get it totally wrong. Um, so like the first... The first rules obviously don't get caught, right? So yeah. if you if your if your job is surveillance, like don't get caught. And um, the sad state of the world is that even uh, for pretty well defended systems, like the time to um, detecting a compromise is in the months to years. And yep. the better you are, um, both in the tools that you build and in the techniques that you employ and the discipline that you show, it's really hard to get caught um, if if you're good. And so, so that's the first thing. So obviously, you can't attribute an attack that you don't know about. Um, yeah, number so, one rule is being stealthy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you, don't get caught. Is, is, yeah. is don't, and, don't, and sometimes that means don't, do no harm and use the other right. tools. Use someone right. else's tools, not that's your right. own. That's right. That's exactly right. Right. And, and, and so, you know, if you're going to transition from surveillance into overt action or you're going to start doing riskier things, like the attacker gets a vote. Like we know when we're being risky and we know like, Oh, there's a good chance this gets burned. So like, what, what do you think we're going to use? Right. Um, <laughs> so, so first off, actually, you know, just, just catching people is really difficult. And I think like mm -hmm. we, we, as a, we, as a community of, of defenders have to be um, of course, harden your systems and, and try to mm -hmm. like, you know, show like a uh, good discipline and keeping people out, but that's not good enough because the attacker only has to be right once. And and you have to you have so you have to focus on okay assuming that we got compromised how how quickly can we detect compromise right and and so um, i think first off that's extremely important because oftentimes i've found that you can at least rule out groups of mm -hmm. potential kinds of attackers based on the behavior of yeah. of how they're operating it's not necessarily like reverse engineering a rootkit it's Okay, what did they do on the network? If I've got full take packet capture, they what did they dump? You know, oh, they dumped this database. Why did they dump this database? Who who would possibly in, be interested in that? Why did they misconfigure this firewall? Right. So you can't just use the, the TTPs, the tactics, technique, and procedures yep. that the operators were employing to like pivot around the network because you know we read Hacker News too, right? Like we <laughs> we know yep. how what all these different APTs are using, and we learn from each other when we repurpose techniques. Mm -hmm. so that's not good enough. Um, and so, yeah, I don't have any answers. Um, attribution is really catch, catching people is really hard. And then even once you catch them, attribution is really hard. Um, but don't you think attribution is actually getting even hard? I, I think I assume yeah. that as technology advances, attribution, your ability to hide and, and hide to your source is actually getting easier it's and easier for you to do. And therefore right. it's That's actually right harder, like, it, I think it's only getting worse. That's right. You're absolutely right, Mike. It is getting more difficult. And, and one of the things I've learned a lot is even from criminal organizations over the years, they start using a lot of misdirections, um, you know, using other people's tools, uh, using your own tools against you. So it gets to the point where that 
you know, unless they're actually having massive campaigns and operations where they're building everything themselves, or it's very unique type of target where they had to do that. Um, if it's more commonality, then it's more difficult to do attribution. And I find it only when the attacker makes mistakes um, is where you can you can call them out. Um, but you're only going to get so far. You're only going to get to a point where I may have an IP address of an origin. I may have a keyboard that the person typed on, but if that machine is shared or that's in a shared location, then it gets very difficult to know you know, who the person was typing in the keyboard and who was giving them the commands to do so. That's where it really gets into the difference. I mean, and, and that's where the thing element is like, of, of attribution comes in. Right, but I also assume that if they're able to compromise this system, they're probably capable of compromising, you know, like that trace of were they actually the ones on that system or was it that that system was compromised and it's actually a different actor? Like, I, Well, you're given the also proxies as well. This is one of my other, other, other challenges is that when you get into offensive, you want to be absolute, you know, where, you know, as you use a high confidence that there's no other possibility uh, because in many situations that um, in order to hide your tracks, you're going to use proxy countries and you can use proxy environments. So, and you're going to basically, you know, if you think of, you mentioned earlier, the Sony attack was, was carried out from different locations or what didn't come from North Korea. It was, it was an issue that launched from different locations around the world. Even Estonia in 2007, majority of the attacks came from basically compromised botnets that were coming, you know, from either uh, educational systems in the U.S., universities were compromised and higher education to systems in the Middle East that were attacking Estonia because those were the compromised machines. So, you know, the attacks can be launched yeah. from anywhere, and a lot of countries are used as secondary victims. And that's where you have to be really, really careful about that. Um, I really even remember working on, there was an incident I worked on a few years ago, um, which, luckily enough, one of the things was the uh, 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 email uh, account was set up in a foreign country. And lucky enough, we got the data hosting provider to share the email account. Uh, and the logs um, from that system, and a lot is the backtrace it. And the problem here's the problem that we had with the uh, attribution. Then we got it back to an internet cafe, and so we had an internet cafe. We knew that was a location where the threat was a, uh, a government official threat, um, uh, and we knew the location of the source. But since it was internet cafe, this is where we ended up handing it over to local law enforcement. They went into the internet cafe and they had a warrant to actually confiscate and collect all technology and computer evidence. They collected everything except <laughs> all the network devices, PlayStations, uh, telephone. There was many things that basically under the local law enforcement's understanding was that they, their understanding of what a computer was and the warrant itself was not exactly the same as what we would view it as. And that made it difficult to end up uh, getting to the point where we, we eventually found out the, the attack, the email was sent from a PlayStation. Um, but because of the logs and because of the information, it meant that we could only do, assume who the, you know, who the attacker was or the, th the person who was doing the threat, and we couldn't do it legally binding. So it ended up becoming just a more, uh, person was under surveillance for longer um, rather than being prosecuted because of those failures and um, the digital forensics and response and, and the local law enforcement team that didn't really understand what technology was. So, so it gets really, sometimes you get lucky with other countries cooperating, but when you get into even the execution of the, you know, the uh, arresting or prosecution and the legal side of things becomes also very difficult and very lengthy as well. Yeah. I mean, 
So I, I try really hard not to be a security nihilist. Um, you know, like these things are really difficult. Uh, you know, the, the one technique that I have seen be probably the best for attribution uh, is unfortunately not available to most, uh, you know, forensics people is to hack back. Um, so if you really want to know, like, who this active, un active participant is on your, on your network, um, you, you have to go back and be on the op station for the, the person that's on the other end um, and, and conduct your own campaign. Um, and, and if you do that, sometimes you can get confirmation, right? Um, but of course, that's like fraught with all kinds of of, of, uh, of challenges. I remember, yeah, because I, I remember there was the concept, so uh, which was called CyberMinds. And CyberMinds was the basically concept of, you know, you set up the attackers, you know, st stands on your, your cyber uh, mine and ends up attacking back. Um, and I got into a big gray legal area. Um, eventually, what we, it's what we call now today deception technology, ultimately where they took that term from was, was deception technology, which came from the Cyber Minds projects. And because it got into a big gray legal area, but hacking back um, into, again, if that was a proxy, you hacking back the proxy, and a proxy is in a country where you've got maybe political, <laughs> let's say, instability, um, you don't know what that hack back could cause. So you had to make sure that your hack, hack back was not hitting the proxy country, but actually hitting the uh, original source. So there's a lot of challenges into that. Uh, but I agree. If you have, but if you have legal frameworks that support that capability, then um, it does provide one area that you can uh, get back to some original source. And we're going to take a break right here. Make sure to check back in two weeks for part two of Josh Lo Spinoza Encryption and Backdoors. Learn how your team can get a free trial of Cybrae for Business by going to www.cybrae.it/business. This podcast is also brought to you by Thycotic, the leader in privileged access management. To learn more, visit www.thycotic.com.